Chapter number five is where we're going to be at this morning, Romans chapter number five. We're going to look at the first five verses of Romans chapter number five. And what I'm going to do this morning is going to be a little bit differently. Um, We're going to work our way through these five verses. And uh, while we do, I really just kind of want to share some of what God's been doing in my heart and what God's been teaching me these past few months. Um, I'm calling this sermon Lessons from the Middle. Because like I said, I feel like I'm still learning these. These aren't lessons that I can stand up here and say, I've got these down. Um, These are things that I'm learning, that I'm growing in, and that God has been growing me in. As most of you know, this uh, past October, my wife and I found out we were expecting child number five. Five. And we were overwhelmed, uh, but also really excited. Uh, The week after Thanksgiving, we had our first ultrasound scheduled. And uh, at the ultrasound, the nurse couldn't find a heartbeat. And of course, the ultrasound technician's not allowed to say anything my wife and I have been through. We have four kids, so we've been through dozens of ultrasounds. We know the drill. Um, But we also knew what was missing. And so she couldn't tell us anything, so they had us just go sit in a waiting room for what felt like forever, and then send us home. Then later that afternoon, we had got a call from the doctor that we had lost the baby. So after that, there was about a week of trying to figure out, okay, what's our next step? Then after figuring that out, I mean, she was far enough along, we had to do something. Um, Then a few weeks of physical healing for her. And right about a month afterwards, when it seemed like everything was getting back to normal, Sarah was getting healed, she was getting back up on her feet, she had a pretty intense setback that resulted in me calling 911, paramedics coming, taking her in an ambulance off to the hospital. She had to have another round of treatment, which required more weeks of bed rest, This past week, we had more blood work done, more ultrasounds, and we got a call Friday. It's going to take another round of treatment, which is going to require more bed rest, more just not being able to really do much of anything. And I'm sharing this with you this morning, not so that you would feel bad for us. Believe me, we feel plenty bad for ourselves. (laughs) I'm sharing this with you this morning because, you know, it's one thing for somebody to say, this is what God's teaching me, and then to leave the circumstances vague. And I'm a big believer that there's no such thing as vague transparency, And so I want to share this with you this morning because I often, and I believe that when we know the circumstances that lead to the lessons that God teaches us, it will give those lessons much more potency. It gives those lessons much more humanity and I think power. I also want to share that with you this morning because while you may not be going through what my wife and I are going through, you are going through something or you will go through something. And while your circumstances are going to look different, the truths we're going to see in God's Word transcend the specifics of our circumstances and meet our specific needs. So if you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand this morning. We're going to read our text, Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Um, We do have something new here this morning. On the back of the chairs, there's a little sticker that has a QR code. If you scan that QR code... It'll take you to a website that has our digital bulletin on it. We used to have these um, on the way in in paper form. We now have those online. So if you'd like to access those, you can do that. Uh, If you're watching at home, you don't have to miss out. You can go to fresnochurch.info, not .com, .info, and that'll take you right to that site. Uh, You can uh, access our connection card. You can send yourself the sermon notes. You can access our online giving. Uh, If this is your first time here, I'd invite you to go there. And you can, the very first thing you'll see is a little picture that says connection card. You can tap on that and fill out that online connection card. Uh, for every guest that fills that out, we'll send uh, a donation to a local nonprofit here in our city. Uh, like I said, you can also take notes, send those to yourselves at the end of the service. Everything you need to connect with us, you can do right from that QR code or that link there. 
But let's read Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. The Bible says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 5 to tell us, to tell us that we were at war with God. We deserve God's wrath. But because we've been declared righteous, he says we are now at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. We rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. Proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, you know how special these verses have been to me these past few weeks and months, and I pray that, Lord, as I speak, your spirit would do in our hearts what my words cannot do. Lord, the glory of God that's revealed to us through the person of Jesus Christ, specifically what he did for us on the cross, and then all the grace that we get to receive as a result and the peace that we have with you and the righteousness that has been given to us as a result is so glorious, Lord. And yet I know how short my words will fall in capturing that glory and presenting it to us as a church family. So I pray that your spirit would open our hearts, open our affection, and that we would realize what these five verses are telling us is our greatest reality. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if I could sum up what I've been learning these past few months and what I think is the theme of this passage, it would simply be this. When we center our lives on grace, we can joyfully endure. When we center our lives on grace, we can joyfully endure. Now, I chose that word joyfully uh, intentionally. I didn't just throw it in there because I thought it rolled better off the tongue. I put it in there because oftentimes when we think about enduring or we think about I need to be faithful, I need to be steadfast, I need to endure, we get the wrong mental image in our mind. Like if you're like me, I, I will often pick myself, picture myself putting the reins of life between my teeth, holding a Winchester 30-30 in one hand and the Colt six-shooter in the other hand and charging my life's problems John Wayne style, right? That's cool, but that's not joyfully enduring. Sometimes when we think about being faithful, we think, well, I just need to hang on till the end. If I could just hold on till the end, if I could just kind of hunker down and wait till Jesus comes, everything will be okay. But that also is not joyfully enduring. Christian endurance is always marked by joy. Why is Christian endurance marked by joy? Because our greatest reality is the fact that we have been declared righteous. And we who were at war with God are now at peace with God. So verse 1 shows us our first thought this morning. Very simply, our greatest reality. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is our greatest reality. That truth is the most defining truth about who we are. A few years ago, I read a book called 10% Happier. The title caught my attention. I'm like, who doesn't want to be 10% happier, right? So I started reading the book. And basically, it was the author's story about how regular med regularly meditating made his life 10% better. Now, to be clear, he was not talking about meditation the way we would define it in a Christian sense. We would define it as filling our mind with God's word and God's truths and 
thinking about it, meditating on it. That's not how he was defining it. As I learned reading this book, he was talking about Buddhist meditation. And about halfway through the book, it felt like he was trying to convert me to Buddhism. So I stopped reading the book. I'm like, this isn't really for me, you know? But what was interesting was, as I was reading some of his story, he said this wasn't really a big game changer for him. It just made his life 10% happier. Hence the title, 10% Happier. And I think, unfortunately, that's oftentimes how we view the gospel. We think, yeah, I'll just say a little prayer, show up to church a few times a month, sprinkle a little bit of Jesus into my life, and then I expect it to just be 10% better, and I'm happy with that. We don't view the fact that God has declared us righteous. We who were at war with God. Not you were just kind of unsure, not you were just not believing, but not really at odds with. No, you were at war with God. And he has made us to be at peace with him. We don't view that as our greatest reality. We don't allow our decisions to spring from our new life in Christ or God's word. We don't allow our, or we allow our affections to be tied up with so many lesser things and this reality. And then when life gets 10% worse, we lose our minds. I I was reading this week about uh, John Bunyan. He was a 17th century, uh, 17th century English Puritan. He wasn't the guy with the blue ox who would chop down trees. That's Paul Bunyan. Uh, This was John Bunyan. He's most famous for his book called The Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read it, I'd really encourage you to read it. It's a great book. Uh, After serving in the military, John Bunyan became a tinker. And he would often preach whenever he was given the opportunity. He wasn't a pastor per se, uh, but whenever he was given the chance to preach, he would take that opportunity. Now, John Bunyan would preach in churches that were not part of the official Church of England. And so in 1660, the religious tolerance that allowed him to do that was starting to diminish. It was starting to be cracked down on. The official Church of England was trying to curtail what we would call religious liberty. And they actually arrested John Bunyan for preaching outside of the official Church of England. Initially, he was only supposed to serve three months in jail. But because he refused to stop preaching, he wound up being in jail for over 12 years. And he said this about our standing with God, about the mercy that we have from God, about what we see here in Romans 5.1. He said, child of God, thou that fearest God, here is mercy nigh thee. Here's mercy near thee. Mercy enough, everlasting mercy upon thee. He goes on to say, this is long-lived mercy. It will live longer than thy sin. It will live longer than thy temptation. It will live longer than thy sorrows. It will live longer than thy persecutors. It is mercy from everlasting to contrive thy salvation and mercy to everlasting to weather it out with all thy adversaries. And I love how he finishes the quote. Now what can hell and death do to him that hath this mercy of God upon him? Here's a man who spent 12 years in jail because he refused to quit preaching for his Savior. And he said, what can hell and death do to him that has the mercy of God on him? His relationship with God, his standing with God, the mercy that God had towards him was his biggest, most defining reality, and because of that, he could joyfully endure 12 years of prison. You see, the gospel of Jesus is such a life-changing truth that everything else in our life is different as a result. We now have peace. We can now endure. We can now have a spirit of joy because we're at peace with God, and that's our biggest, most defining reality. There's a passage that's been really great for my mental health these past 12 months. It's in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah chapter number 8, verses 12 and 13. The Bible says, Do not call everything a conspiracy. These people say is a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. You are to regard only the Lord God of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. 
You see, the living God is so tremendously glorious in all his ways that he cannot be known without being adored. And the more we adore God, the more we hold him in awe, the more we allow the gospel to be our biggest reality, our most defining reality, the more we allow our justification to be the most important thing in our lives, the more we will hold God, God in awe. I read this week a set of studies that was published in 2018 in the journal Emotion. And this study sought to demonstrate the impact of awe on the well-being and stress-related symptoms. The authors found that every participant in the study, after experiences of awe, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder decreased, while their scores of general happiness, satisfaction with life, and social well-being all increased. After everybody that went through the study, after they had an experience of awe, stress-related diseases decreased, and their overall well-being increased. This followed a report from the same journal in 2015 showing that people who experience more awe also appear to have better immune health. Studying the effects of emotions on the molecules that have been associated with conditions like diabetes, heart disease, depression, researchers found that awe was the emotion most likely linked to lower levels of those molecules. Now, I understand this is a secular study, but as Christians, don't we have the greatest reason to live in awe of our Savior? And when we live in a sense of awe that we have been declared righteous by God, when I allow that, that verse 1 to be my greatest reality, and I live in awe in a sense of that, I'm literally going to be a happier and healthier person. See, author Michael Reeves says, it's beauty that kills the raging beast of anxiety. It's the beauty of what God has done for me that allows me to not just be at peace with God, but in peace in the middle of difficult circumstances. It's no wonder Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Like, <laughs> this is a pretty crazy statement. Jesus is saying, don't fear people that can kill you. Like, I'm a little scared if you could kill me. <laughs> But Jesus said, don't fear those that could kill you but can't destroy the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to both destroy the soul and body in hell. See, there's only one person who should have total control over my affections. There's only one person who should have total control over my mental and emotional health. There's only one person who should have total say or whatever we think and do. There's only one person that I should really genuinely be afraid of, but because of the finished work of Christ, I don't have to be. Because of the finished work at Christ, I am eternally at peace with him. And when we are living like the gospel is our greatest reality, it puts every other circumstance, every other trial, every other difficulty into perspective. It doesn't deny the reality. It doesn't deny pain. It doesn't deny suffering. Nowhere in this message am I trying to belittle anybody's pain or suffering and say it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. But the gospel of Jesus, the grace that we have been given as a result, our justification is such a bigger and louder and more glorious reality that we can rejoice even when we are in pain. Verse 1 shows us our greatest reality. In verses number 2 through 5, we see Paul gives us our reasons for rejoicing our reasons for rejoicing. Why can we rejoice? First of all, we can rejoice because the glory of God is our sure hope. Look at verse number two. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It's just the display of his beauty, his greatness, his worth, his majesty, his power. I say it's just. <laughs> 
It's the display of his beauty, of his worth, of his majesty, of his greatness, of his power, of his love. Everything that makes God God, when he displays that, that's the glory of God before us. The Bible tells us in Romans 6, 4, that it was the glory of God that raised Christ from the dead. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so that we too may walk in newness of life. We have hope and we can rejoice because God's glory is greater than anything. It's greater than anything we'll have to face in this life, and it's what allows us to stand in God's grace. Sometimes it feels like we're kind of limping along in it, but the Apostle Paul says God's glory is so great, you can firmly be planted in God's grace. That is your position. That is who you are. Because of God's glory, you get to stand in his grace. This word grace here, if you were to go look it up in the original language in Greek, it's the word charis. That makes me want chorizo, which is common grace, but not the same thing. It's a word that's used to describe God's unconditional favor towards those who have sinned against him and are his enemies. Not his favor towards people that he likes, not his favor towards people that, oh, they're kind of on my team, so I'll give them favor. No, it's God's unconditional favor towards those who have sinned against him and are his enemies. In our text, the Apostle Paul explains that, that our peace with God is an act of God's grace. He reminds believers that at one time we were his enemies, if you read down in verse number 10. So I think a great New Testament definition of this word would be unmerited favor towards an enemy. Grace towards one who has forfeited any claim on God's favor because of his sin and deserves the opposite, God's wrath, verse number 9. We deserve God's wrath. But God has given us, because his glory is so great, grace. And we can rejoice because no matter what difficulty we face, nothing can hinder or diminish the glory, God's glory. God is jealous for his glory. Nothing hinders the glory of God. And it's his glory that allows us to stand in grace. And so I can rejoice no matter what my circumstances are because I know nothing can hinder God's glory. Nothing can separate me from the grace of God because it's there as a result of the glory of God. And nothing can hinder that. And so the Apostle Paul says, we can rejoice because we get to stand in grace because the glory of our God is great. Amen. That's why the glory of God is our sure hope. And not only are we standing in God's grace now, but the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter number 8 that there is an eternal weight of glory awaiting for us that makes our suffering seem like nothing. Romans 8.18 for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. You see, the glory of God is so great and amazing and awe-inspiring. Paul is literally saying, it's so high, it's so lofty, it's so amazing. We can't even hold our suffering in comparison to it. And yes, our suffering is real. Yes, the pain is real. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, there's long nights without sleep. Yes, there's lots of hard questions that we want to ask God. But God's glory is so great, and his power is so great, and his beauty is so great, and his majesty is so great. The Apostle Paul says our suffering can't even compare to it. It's like trying to hold up a flashlight next to the light of the sun. The light of that flashlight disappears. It's consumed. And the Apostle Paul tells us, as real and as hard and as difficult as our suffering is, it disappears next to the glory that we're going to get to see for all of eternity. Again, this doesn't diminish our suffering. Sometimes when we hold something up, we hear somebody doing that, it's easy for us to think, well, they must be belittling something else. 
My goal, again, is not to belittle suffering. My goal is just to elevate the glory of God to such a place that our suffering just kind of, the things of this earth go strangely dim. You see, the reason we can rejoice in God is not that the Christian life is easy. It's not an easy life. Jesus said, I send you out as sheep amongst wolves. (laughs) That's hard. (laughs) The reason is that the glory of God is great beyond all imagining. And because of the work of Jesus Christ, it's rock sure. It is our sure hope. And when that glory is our greatest reality, we rejoice. When we center our lives on grace, when we center our lives on God's glory, we can joyfully endure. We rejoice because of the greatness of the glory of God. And if that wasn't enough, Paul gives us another reason we can rejoice. Look at verses 3 through 5. We rejoice because the glory of God is our sure hope, but we also rejoice because we know what affliction produces. Let's pick it up in verse number 3 of chapter 5. And not only that, as if that wasn't enough, but we also rejoice in our affliction. Because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. Proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now the fact that affliction helps us grow in endurance means affliction is difficult. It means what we face is hard. There are hardships that many of us have to face. Endurance assumes difficulty. Suffering brings grieving. Suffering brings prayers of lament. It, it's filled with difficult questions. Suffering often causes us to reorient our notions of goodness. But we can rejoice in our affliction because we know what it's going to produce. First of all, our text tells us it produces endurance. I've been talking about that a lot. What is the definition of endurance? Endurance means to suffer without yielding. It is steadfastness or constancy. In the New Testament, it's the characteristic of a man who's not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even greatest trials and sufferings. So when I am joyfully enduring, it means I can get up in the middle of my suffering and do the next right thing. I've got two daughters at home. Lord knows I've watched Frozen way too many times, right? But there's a song in the second one where she's suffering and she stands up and she says, I'm just going to do the next right thing. And I love that song because that's what joyful endurance allows us to do. Stand up with tears streaming down our faith and joyfully step forth and do what God has called us to do. It means I'm going to continue to live out God's purpose for my life. It means I'm going to love and serve my wife and family while we continue to work through the physical and emotional ramifications of our miscarriage. Enduring means tomorrow you can show up at work and joyfully do the best of your ability at your job even though your flesh may not want to. Your flesh might want to give halfway, but joyfully enduring means you can show up tomorrow because of all that Christ has done for you and you can do your job to the best of your ability. Enduring means if you don't have a job, tomorrow you can joyfully get up and keep looking for a job trusting that God's going to meet your needs. Joyfully enduring means... You can serve your family and point them to Jesus even when you would rather check out emotionally. There's so many times we as guys, we just want to emotionally check out. We don't want to emotionally serve our family. But joyfully enduring means I'm going to show up. I'm going to joyfully serve them. I'm going to emotionally be present. I'm going to mentally be present and physically be present with my family even when I want to check out right now. Enduring means you believe Jesus is eternally more satisfying than the temptations of sin. Now let me tell you, when you're suffering, those temptations come. But joy-filled endurance means 
I believe Jesus is eternally more satisfying than whatever pleasures the flesh wants to give me. Endurance means you don't let the political unrest and division in our country cause your spirit to not be at rest. Because yes, while you love your country, you recognize you're a citizen of a better kingdom, an enduring kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And whatever happens in our country, you recognize that's not my greatest reality. My greatest reality is the glory of God and nothing can take that away. So my joy is rock solid. My joy is sure. I won't let what's going on in my country rob me of my joy because I have a greater reality. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. It means that we get up in the morning and we spend time with God even when we have hard questions. Joyfully enduring means you take those questions to God and you ask him those hard questions. And you just let him be God. That's what joyful enduring means. Joyfully enduring means we don't give up on our faith when we go through hard times. It means we allow the Holy Spirit to take those painful circumstances and produce in our hearts new levels of growth, new levels of consistency in our life. We allow afflictions to solidify our faith, not be the cause of us abandoning our faith. Affliction produces endurance. What does endurance produce? Proven character. Proven character just means your endurance has been proven. It means your character isn't theoretical. It means you know your faith is real because you've seen how God has shown up in your darkest hour and proven himself to be real. It's part of what God uses to solidify your faith. That's what this proven character is. It means you know the work that the Holy Spirit has done in your life and it's real. It's not just hypothetical head knowledge. You've lived it out. You've seen the Holy Spirit work this out in you. That is proven character. And as you joyfully endure, that character of God gets proven over and over and over in your life, and you develop this proven character. And as you grow in that proven character, the Bible tells us it produces hope. Hope. Affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. Proven character produces hope. Hope is a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. And I love how verse 5 says this hope won't disappoint us. My wife's favorite football team is the Pittsburgh Steelers. <clears throat> Some of you are snickering. <laughs> and they had a great season. They went 11 games undefeated. 11 games undefeated, that's crazy. My wife was so excited, she was hoping they would go all the way through the playoffs and win the Super Bowl. But if you follow football, you know they are no longer even in the playoffs. <laughs> Her hope led to disappointment. That is not the type of hope that we're talking about. The hope that we're talking about is sure. It is rock solid. We have the authority of God's word that says it will not disappoint you. So if something is disappointing you, that means it wasn't this rock solid, sure hope that we have in God. Because the Holy Spirit is pouring out God's love in our hearts in the middle of affliction. And because of that hope, we rejoice. Affliction is what God uses to grow us, to change us, to make us more like him. Affliction allows us to experience God's love in ways that we never would have otherwise. You see, if we skip out on the process of verse 3 and 4, we will miss out on experiencing the love of God in verse 5. Not because God doesn't love you or his love's not available to you or he's not pulling, pouring it out towards you, but because you're not positioning your life in your affliction to experience God's love. This is why we can live in a state of hope and rejoicing. Earlier when I said I had a 
called 911 for my wife. We were actually out of town. Um, my brother and his wife put us up in this really nice hotel on the coast. Like, this is not a hotel that we would ever stay in. It was that nice. Um, like I said earlier, it seemed like, man, Sarah was getting back up on her feet. We had a babysitter for the night, so we were looking forward to just getting some rest, rest emotionally, rest physically. We love the coast, so we were really looking forward to it. Then, of course, that morning, about 6.30, 7 o'clock, I had to call 911. Paramedics come, they take Sarah away in an ambulance, and I was just left standing there in front of the hotel. Like, they just took my wife away in an ambulance. Now what do I do? And I, I went back up into the hotel room, and I just, I lost it. I broke down. I started crying. I got really angry at God. And I can remember just yelling in my room, why is this happening? God, I don't need this right now. You see, the truth is, we all face moments when we don't live in the awareness of the fact that the gospel is our greatest reality. We all moments, sometimes seasons, where we let our circumstances have more control over our affections and our attitude. And what do we do in those moments? Because it's one thing to say God's, our suffering can't compare to God's glory, but when your suffering is so real and the pain is so real, the glory of God just seems like this elusive thing, like this mythical, like, what, what do we do? You cry out to God. You say, God, just open the eyes of my heart. Awaken my affection to see your glory, because right now all I see is my problems. And you beg God. And sometimes you have to pray that again and again, and day after day, and moment after moment, but you beg God, God, open my heart. Show me your glory. Show me from your word how you are my biggest reality, how what you have done for me on the cross is the greatest thing that could ever happen to my life, and that transcends any difficulty I have to face. Lord, help me cherish my standing in grace over my circumstances. I love the book of 1 Peter. In chapter 3, uh, verses 14 and 15, it says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. I just want to pause right there and say we all need to pray for faith to view suffering that way. Because I don't. But Peter says, even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. He goes on to say, do not fear what they fear. He's actually quoting the passage that I quoted earlier from Isaiah here. He says, do not fear what they fear or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord is holy. In the Old Testament, Isaiah says Lord of armies. Now Peter's building on the deity of Christ by saying Christ the Lord as holy. And he says, be ready at any time to give a defense. That word defense is where we get our English word apologetics, if you look it up in the Greek. And so there's an element of what Peter's saying here. We need to mentally be able to give a reasonable argument for our faith. I believe that's an important part of the Christian life. But notice what he goes on to say. He doesn't say be ready to give it a defense so that you can be right. Be ready to give a defense so you can win that Facebook argument. So that you can blast people in the comments. No, be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. There's so much that we could unpack from these two little verses, but this is what I want to point out. The hope that Christ gives us is so big and it is so real, it can make people do a double take on your life. People can look at your life and be like, I, I don't understand, how can you have hope right now? How can you have joy right now? Your life has fallen apart. Peter says this hope will be so real 
that people will ask us why we have it. Imagine living with such hope, with such confidence, that no matter what you face, there's just this hope. And the lost world looks at it and goes, how can you have hope? And then you get to share with them Jesus. So how do we, how do we practice this? We, we, we saturate our mind with the grace of God. This is why as believers, we need to be people that eat up the word of God. Because that is how we renew our mind with the truth of God. As believers, we need to meditate, think on over and over and over and over again how we were once enemies with God. You were his enemy. I was his enemy. Ephesians says, I was at enemy with God. I was at war with him in my sin. Even as a little kid that came to know Christ at a young age, I was at war with him. You who were at enmity with God. And sit there for a minute. Sometimes we don't appreciate all that we've been given in the gospel because we don't think we were that bad beforehand. But, but believe, <laughs> you are at war with God. And here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. God loved you in your state of war against him and he saved you and he made you at peace with him and he declared you righteous. Meditate on that. Saturate your mind with that. Guys, turn off the news. Take a break from Facebook. I got back on Twitter this year. That was a dumb decision. <laughs> like, just turn it off. Turn it off. And meditate. Saturate your mind in the Word of God. Saturate your mind in who you are in Christ. Meditate on His promises. Think on it over and over and over and over and over again until that becomes your biggest, most defining reality. Saturate your mind with the grace of God and experience genuine, enduring joy. When we saturate our mind with grace, the grace of God, we will experience true, authentic, enduring joy that can transcend any circumstances. When we center our lives on grace, we can joyfully endure. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that we would be a people who can endure Lord, there's so many difficulties that so many people have to face. And Lord, I, I shared a little bit of my wife and I's story. And Lord, because I know most of the people in this room fairly well, Lord, I know there's people who are going through and have gone through things that are far worse than anything I've had to endure. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people who just center our lives on you. And that as we meditate on who you are, that as we saturate our minds in who you are, we would be a people that would just endure. And we would allow ourselves to develop endurance and proven character and hope. Not the type of hope that lets us down, but the type of enduring hope that will never let us down. And I pray that we would be people who are so full of you that it makes people look at our lives and say, how can you have hope? Not so that we can be praised, but so that they can see our good works, so that they can see our good hope and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. Lord, you are our all-powerful creator and our redeeming Father. And I pray that we would just stand in awe of that every day. Help us not to get used to it. Help us not to get tired of it. Help us not to just think it's old hat, but every day remind us of how blessed and amazed we are that we get to be your children i was your enemy and you made me your child lord i pray that we would know what is the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of your love 
that goes past knowledge. Our minds can't fully comprehend it, but you're able to do exceedingly above what we ask or think, and I pray that we would be able to comprehend it with all the saints, just how loved we are. And that love would produce endurance, proven character. 